morning. Good morning. Welcome to Faith. We're in a, a preaching series right now in the book of First Timothy. We've got Paul's letter, Apostle Paul, to his disciple, his son in the faith, Timothy. And uh, we're calling this series Fight the Good Fight. Fight the Good Fight. You know, New Testament church, the ch- churches that are, are, are healthy are churches that are missional, that where, where, where the churches are reaching out to our hurting, lost world with the good news about Jesus Christ. Um, in this series, we want to review the New Testament guidelines for healthy missional churches and healthy missional leaders. That's what Timothy wants to become. My title today is The Tactics for Kingdom Expansion. Tactics for Kingdom Expansion. In every war, there's a strategy to accomplish your ultimate goal that the commander-in-chiefs and the generals map out. Uh, but then there are specific tactics to accomplish this strategy. Now, many of us don't know a lot about warfare. We, you know, not, not many of us have done that. Uh, um, so maybe you play board games. Uh, I, play, I love chess. Chess is a great game. And I imagine... Uh, the, the goal of chess is to, to checkmate or to corner the, the other person's king. And, it, and, and there's a strategy, you can think of a strategy of how you want to do that, but then every move there's a little, little tactical advantage that you want to, to gain. I remember in college, my roommates, we would, uh, we would play uh, games of chess, and we would actually uh, play tag team chess, where you would have two people on the same team, and you have to guess the strategy that, that each other was using. Very complicated to do that unless you know the person very well. It was fun. But anyway, God's goal is making disciples, and his strategy is churches planting churches. This is in the New Testament. His strategy is that churches would plant churches. And the Apostle Paul reminds his young disciple and fellow church planter, Timothy, that we are in a war. We're waging war. It's a good warfare. He says, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. And there are key tactics that our commander-in-chief, our leader, has instituted that will bring about the desired outcome, which is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, the multiplication of healthy gospel-centered churches, churches that expand Christ's kingdom in the world. With that as, a, as an understanding, let's look at the text. Look at the 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue in this first chapter and go into, uh, starting at verse 18, and go to, to chapter 2, verse 7. ESV translation is on the, on the screen there. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hamenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one mediator, and there is one, excuse me, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Tuesday, September 11, 2001. It was 9.55. Terry 
was gone to work. Five kids were gone to school. And I was about to come over here, and I said, hey, the dishes haven't been done. So I stopped to do the dishes. I said, let me turn the, turn the news on. It's five minutes to 10. Get some news. At five minutes to 10, there was an interesting thing. There was breaking news. I said, what's going on? It sounds like something crazy's happened. Before I could figure out what it was, the phone rang. It was my sister from Dallas, Texas. And all she said was, hi, Stanley. The f- Mom and dad are still here. They didn't get on the plane. I said, okay. I knew, they had, I knew my parents were in Dallas, and they were flying home to Reagan Airport that day. They said, they're, 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 they're still in Dallas. They didn't get on the first plane. They had, for some reason, decided to go on the second plane. I said, yeah, wh- what's going on? She said, you, you haven't been watching the news? I said, no, I, but I just turned the radio on. Something crazy is going on. So my sister told me that the two twin towers in Manhattan had been hit by planes, September 11th. Something happened that day. Many people realized that America had enemies who were quite intent on defeating our nation. A a, a watchfulness instantly began to happen. Every time you go through a metal detector, every time you get wanded at a concert or a ball game, you are reminded of the undeniable fact that we that, that, that a war was going on. We're under we're in a war. Though we don't always realize it. Saints, we're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual battle against Satan who tempts us from both inside and outside. See, the spiritual battlefield is the minds and the hearts of human beings. That includes you and includes me. See, we have a problem. Unfortunately, we can go through life totally ignoring the reality of the spiritual warfare, and that pleases Satan, you know. But when we do, our faith tends to diminish into complacency and apathy. It can even drift into unbelief and falling away from the faith. It's dangerous. In, in the passage today, 1 Timothy 1 and 2, um, we wanna, I want to look at the kind of faith, the kind of faith that defeats Satan, that advances the kingdom of God. Satan is the enemy of Jesus, and he's the enemy of those who love Jesus. But there's, there, there are tactics that God has given us that we don't have to be defeated in, in this battle. The passage unfolds very simply. It's the, the, the faith that advances Satan's kingdom is a persevering faith. It's a, it's a praying faith, and it's a proclaiming faith. Let's look at the details. Verses 18 to 20. A faith that defeats Satan and advances the kingdom of God is a faith that is a preserving faith. It preserves. Uh, the, 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 verse 1, this ch- verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies that previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The charge that I tr- entrust to you. Now that word charge is the third time in, the, in this first chapter that he used that word. Several weeks ago, Craig uh, 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 broke down the first two times. Verse 3, I urge you, Paul says to Timothy, to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And now we see the word again, I charge you. Charge is a military word. Now he is Timothy's friend. He's Timothy's brother in Christ. But Paul postures himself here as a higher-ranking officer giving a command to a lieutenant. Timothy, Paul's exhorting him to say, to, to set things right in Ephesus, where 
They were very influential, very charismatic, false teachers who were deceiving the believers. Paul had predicted this in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. Paul said, fierce wolves would infiltrate the flock at Ephesus, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so because Paul knows Timothy's natural hesitancy, he urges him, Timothy, don't pull back, don't retreat, courageously stay in the battle, stand your ground. Eugene Peterson translates the passage this way, I'm passing this work on to you, my son Timothy. The prophetic word that was directed to you prepared us for this. All those prayers are coming together now, so you will do, so you will do this well. Fearless in your struggle, keeping a firm grip on your faith and on yourself. After all, this is a fight that we're in. Gene Peterson, the message. This charge includes several very specific admonitions. Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. He, again, he's repeating words he's used. We saw those words in, in verse 5. We said love, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. So, so again, this is the charge he's called him to do. He says, but by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. He's going to talk in a second about some who didn't do this. They didn't do this. And in verse 20, he mentions Satan, who's behind this defection. Notice that. I mentioned earlier that the battlefield is full of hearts and minds, our hearts and minds. And there are a few of Satan's schemes that we ought to be aware of in this spiritual battle. One is that Satan's, one of his primary places of attack is an area of, of, of doctrine. He, uses, he, he brings heresy to the church. Doctrinal error or lack of clarity regarding essential truths of the scriptures. He uses disunity. Believers fighting over insignificant things. He uses immorality, scandalous living, bondage to the sins of the flesh. Satan uses doubt, giving us a lack of assurance in the gospel, in, in the word of God, in, in our own ability to embrace Christ. Doubt. He uses discouragement, causing us to lose our joy due to seeing some of the previous things of heresy, disunity, immorality, etc. So Paul then gives us two examples of, of men who have failed to persevere in, the, in this charge. Verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. These men strayed. They got off course. They swerved from the straight and narrow path. 2 Timothy 2 Verses 16 to 18 give us a window into one of these men, which helps us understand why Paul is so upset with these men. Um, let me read 2 Timothy 2, 16. But avoid uh, irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, there's our dude, and Philetus. So, this is the second letter of Paul to Timothy. This dude, Hymenaeus, is still troubling the church. And in verse 19 of 2 Timothy 2, he goes on. Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So, false doctrine. They're teaching that you aren't going to, be you aren't going to go to heaven. There's some doctrine of resurrection. They have totally distorted don't believe what Paul's saying. Here's the truth of resurrection. False doctrine. Heresy. So Paul is not afraid to name name of this false teacher who had infiltrated the church. Here are a few hints, I believe, quickly on how, how, we, can, how we can persevere. 
how we can, can keep our charge. We, we need the kind of faith that's strong and endures difficulties. Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I just love that title. It's a good book, but the title itself is great. It's a long obedience in the same direction. How do we develop and maintain a faith that endures over the long haul? Well, you know, saving faith is indeed a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Uh, he gives us understanding. He gives us the will to believe, and he gives us the ability to follow him. Jesus said that no one can even come unless the Father draws them. But developing a persevering kind of faith, it also begins with God. It comes from God. As we, as we hear his word, as we hear it and we heed his word, we he must hear the word of God that he's provided for us. Every week in our worship, every day in our private times with God, letting the Spirit remind you of the simplicity of the gospel is what we need to do. Be in the place where we're hearing the gospel and speaking to our souls and our hearts. And then, then we also go a persevering kind of faith, but through the fellowship of one another, through the encouragement of one another, Hebrews chapter 10. Not neglecting the gathering of the saints as is a habit of some, but, but, but all the more stirring one enough to love and good deeds that you see the day approaching. Hebrews chapter 10. Just a quick application question for you. In 10 years, 10 years ago, where was your faith? Where were you 10 years ago? Some of you didn't even believe in Jesus 10 years ago. Think about it. Now look where you are. But an even deeper question is 10 years from now, where will you be? Will you still be following Jesus? Will you still be following Jesus? Have you ever thought about that question? What does following Jesus look like? When more and more others laugh at you for following Jesus. When there's things about the faith that you're not even totally sure about, but you have to continue seeking him, pursuing him. You know, life is about choices. Every day, every hour, every minute of every hour, the choices we make reveal the true direction of our heart. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Choose to follow him honestly every day, even on those days when it's difficult. Reflect on the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel. You know, I was looking at the, uh, just thinking about the, the recent storms of Harvey and Irma and Maria and, and Jose and, and the devastation. You know, we have very little control in one sense over our lives. We're subject to a lot of things. We can't control our lives. But you know, we, we can't control our response to things. And the same is true in our spiritual lives. In one sense, God is not asking you to follow him for 10 years or for 20 years or for 30 years. God is asking you to follow him today. Today. Because 20 and 30 and 40 years is a series of todays. It's all it is. I love the gospel song by Christy Lane. I, she says, and this is her, I'm only human, I'm just a woman. Help me believe what I could be in all that I am. Show me the stairway I have to climb. Lord, for my sake, teach me to take one day at a time. Lord, do you remember when you walked among men? Well, Jesus, you know, if you're looking below, it's worse now than then. Cheating and stealing, violence and crime. So for my sake, teach me to take one day at a time. One day at a time, sweet Jesus. That's all I'm asking of you. Give me the strength to do every day what I have to do. Yesterday's gone, sweet Jesus. Tomorrow may never be mine. 
Lord, help me today. Show me the way one day at a time. I could just sing that song, but I'm not going to bore you with that. A persevering faith is a faith that understands it's one day at a time following Jesus. A faith that also defeats Satan also is a faith that prays. Verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 2, 1 to 3. Now Paul shifts here. There's a new topic in chapter 2 that's going to continue in, in the coming week. Um, he's going to talk about public worship and the structuring of public worship. He says, first of all, then. Then he lists four things about prayer. He urges us, he urges them to pray. To pray for all people, it says. The ESV translation, and by the way, um, the, the study Bible notes, I like this. He says, it says, Paul is not listing various ways of prayer, but piling up various terms in reference to prayer for the cumulative impact. So he's, he's, just, he's piling up various terms on prayer. But, but the all, pray for all people, all that includes family and friends and acquaintances and enemies and even strangers. There's a specific call in the next verse, though, to, call, to, to pray for leaders, kings, those who are in authority. The, the, the command is, is to lift up kings, lift them up. I believe our governmental leaders are accountable to God for how they serve. They are to protect people. They are to create the capacity for their people's success and flourishing. They're to be some sort of a role model, setting an example for their people. And they are also to create an atmosphere for healthy conversation, especially religious conversation, among the people. And, and, and the text gets to that last point if we look at it, as we look at it very carefully. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a book uh, that actually Craig's brother Chuck has written called Obama Prayer. And, and um, I read, read the book. I have the book. I uh, love the book. It's a great book. It's about, it, now, now, Chuck works, works for the PCA Missions to North America. He serves in Washington, D.C. as a minister of state. And he's he discipling government workers and politicians that come and go over the years down in D.C. So Obama Prayer was a book that he used in, dis, in, in helping people to just learn how, to, how do you pray for the president. And now we have a new president, so, Chuck, so Chuck's got another book, and it's called Prayers for Trump, Petitions for the 45th President. Now, I don't have that book yet. I, I, I need to get it, but I was looking at the review of the book. Here's what it says. When he, speaking of the Apostle Paul, wrote the words in, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, Emperor Nero was the king of the Roman Empire. Paul urges Timothy and all of us to pray for our political leaders. His rationale is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. He says, I am quite sure that Paul disagreed with almost everything Nero politically believed in. And yet, he urged the church to pray for Nero. Let me pause here. Now, now the Roman emperor Nero, Google him and Google... He, his immorality was enough to, to disqualify him in one sense. But he hated the church. He hated the Jews. He did unspeakable things to the church, to the Jewish people. Um, in fact, Paul was imprisoned under Nero and, and essentially, eventually uh, beheaded under Nero. And yet he says, pray for that king. Pray for that emperor. Let me go back to Eddie's remark. Tim Thomas Eddie, the reviewer. He says, how much more, regardless of our political view, should we be praying for our political leaders? In much the same way Chuck Garriott did with his book, 
Obama prayers. In prayers of Trump, prayers for Trump, he uses the Proverbs to help guide us in prayer for our chief executive. He says, this is not a political book. It does not take sides in the current political debate. It's a book, first and foremost, to guide us to follow Paul's urging. That supplications, prayers, sessions, and thanksgivings be made for our president, no matter who he or she is. Listen, do you want to be light and salt in this generation in conversations with people? You want to make a difference? Stop talking about the president like we do and pray for him. Stop talking to others about him, but talk to God about him if you have problems with him. I mean, he do. Proverbs 21, is a, Proverbs 21, verse 1, write that down. 21.1 in Proverbs. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The president's not ultimately in control. Do we, have you learned that yet? Do you know that yet? You need to. We worship King Jesus, and he's the ultimate one in control. Some of you remember, are old enough to remember the days of, of, of Jim Crow America. We had a president named Lyndon Johnson who was known as an overt racist with his attitude, his, his language, and yet during his administration in the 60s, the civil rights movement achieved great progress. You need to know that. That was before most of you were born, but you need to know that. And there, 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 there's, how did that happen? Three Ps. Passive resistance. Nonviolent protests as, as they would, dogs would come and, and fire hoses would come and, and they passively would lay down and, and submit to being arrested by the authorities who were evil. Passive resistance. Two, political pressure. They, they got in relationships with those in Washington who could make a difference and who were on their side. And the third P, prayers to God. Prayers to their heavenly Father. The church was foundational to that movement in the 60s. Prayer and worship. I believe somebody needs to learn their history still. Um, in his letter from Birmingham jail, uh, King wrote this. A couple things here. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such a creative tension that a community has consistently refused to negotiate its, its force to confront the issue. He says, we will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all the, over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with the destiny of America. So over the last few years, I have consistently preached that nonviolence demands that the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek. So I've tried to make it clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. Anyway, the letter to a Birmingham jail, it, we need to review that carefully in our day that we might know how to be good citizens who believe in justice and believe that we need to have an atmosphere where the gospel can flourish in our day. Moving on, verse, in, in verses 2 and 3, he says, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. A couple of applications for us, because I mean, there's an exhortation to pray, and we need to, we need to take that seriously as, as a church, and we do, I believe. But a couple of things you may 
need to know. One is that every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, there's a prayer meeting in the, in the intercessors room. You can be part of that. It's a small group of people, but it needs to be more who, who pray for a Sunday morning, for worship service, for soul food, for just for just who pray for the church in that simple way. Very brief time, very important time. Um, there's also arisen just this year a, a morning prayer meeting. It began on Tuesday mornings. It's called the Sentinel Prayer Gathering Mornings over the White House. And uh, this week I saw an email that it's no longer going to be just Tuesday morning. It's going to be every morning at 6.30 to 7. Anyone who wants to gather can come and pray. We also, as you know, we have concerts of prayer. Concerts of prayer. We have those uh, every other month. And, and there's a change in how we do that. I won't go into the details now. But the phrase concerts of prayer is trouble, is confusing to some people. What's a concert? A concert is where you have an orchestra and they come with the various instruments and they make music together. That's beautiful. And <laughs> the, the concerts of prayer is a term believers have used through the ages um, where believers from various stages come bringing their gifts of prayer to one another. And so we pray together, lifting up prayers and praises to the Father. So we call these concerts of prayer that we have uh, every other month. And you'll be hearing about a change in the structure. We mentioned this at the, uh, at the leadership retreat last weekend. In fact, last weekend at the leadership retreat, there was a great encouragement and a challenge to pray about prayer. There's a very important discussion about should you have big prayers or little prayers? I thought it was very, very important discussion that many of us, many people, there were some questions asked that were very helpful, very courageous questions. And sometimes you're afraid to ask big prayers because you don't want to be disappointed. Those are the kind of questions that, were, that, that, that we wrestle with. And, and as I was thinking about that in this passage, I think about Acts, the 12th chapter. Read that someday. Let me tell you about Acts, the 12th chapter. It's a great chapter. The church in Jerusalem, there have been for you know, a few chapters before in Acts. Um, but as we know from chapter 1 and chapter 4, they were a praying church. They gathered for joint prayer times together. Chapter 12, it begins with James, one of the disciples, one of the apostles, being killed, being martyred for his faith. Now we have to assume they prayed, right? I mean, we assume that, that when... He was arrested. They prayed. They gathered to pray. And I'm sure their prayers were, Lord, spare his life, you know. Um, that prayer was answered not in the way they thought. He ended up in heaven and not still serving in Jerusalem. And then the passage goes on in chapter 12 of Acts that they arrest Peter, Peter the apostle. And it explicitly says in verse 5 that they prayed. They earnestly prayed. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And do you remember how the story ends? If you read that chapter, read it sometime. He was released by an angelic miracle. A miracle came, and the angel released him. He heads to the house of John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, where many, it says, many were gathered together and were praying. What are they praying about? I would guess they were praying that God would, re, would deliver Peter from jail, and that he would not get martyred like John had gotten martyred. Rhoda, the servant girl, answers the door. It's the gate. There's a gate there. And she hears Peter's voice, and she's astounded. She's amazed. And instead of letting him in the gate, she goes back to the prayer meeting and says, guess who's here? Peter's here. God's answered our prayers. And they said, you're crazy. 
He says, you are out of your mind. You know why I like that story? They were praying. Their faith wasn't that strong, was it? You ever had prayers like that? Well, you're praying, but your faith isn't that strong. But God answered it. That's so instructive for us. God is a sovereign God. He's a big God. He surprises us sometimes. Even our little faith, he answers our prayers. People pray. pray. Don't be afraid to pray, to pray big prayers. God might surprise you and answer your big prayers. Hebrews 11 says uh, that he is one who rewards those who earnestly seek after him. In the realm of, of the world of religion, there, there are um, atheists who conclude that there is no God. There are theists who believe in God, an almighty, all-powerful, loving creator. There are agnostics who just aren't sure. And they don't think you can be sure if there really is a, a God. There are deists who say there's a God who created things, but he's not involved in this creation anymore. So miracles, prayer, don't even, don't even worry about it. They don't happen. But the danger for Christians is to live like a practical atheist, a practical atheist. These are, these are people who say they believe in God, but they live like they don't. They don't live a life that, that reflects the fact that they have faith that they're trusting that God can do more than they can do. And they're leaning on him, trusting in him, humbling himself before him, and watching his mighty hand do great things. That's the danger for those of us who walk by faith. We talk about a persevering faith, a praying faith, and, and, and lastly, a faith that, that, that advances God's kingdom at defeating Satan is a pray, faith that proclaims, that proclaims, verses 4 to 7. God desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see that in verse 4. God desire his wish. Some translations say he wills, he's his wish. 2 Peter 3 says he's not willing or wishing that any should perish. That's what it says. Um, John 3.16. God is the Savior. You see that? God, God is Savior. He said that in verse 3. And uh, the gospel, in the, there, there is, he says in verse 5, there is... One God, there is one mediator, and that's Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And, 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 and he gave himself as a ransom for all. There's one message. And the message is a message about a God who gave himself as a ransom. This points to the truth in the scriptures of, of substitution, of payment for sin. That some people don't like that, under, that understanding about what Christ did on the cross. But he paid the penalty of our sins. He, he died on a cross for us. He shed his blood for us that we might have life, that we might have uh, uh, life abundantly. It was the just dying for the unjust to bring us to God, as it says in, in Peter. The gospel of Jesus is a ransom. You know, in, in, in the gospel of Matthew, at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and Peter have this great confession, the confession of Peter when when. Uh, Peter confesses, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, and, and then when Jesus says, that, that means that he's going to go to the cross, go to Jerusalem and, and, and going to die on a cross, Peter takes Jesus aside and says, Jesus, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen. Remember that? And, and Jesus then, making sure the other disciples can see him, says, get thee behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan. Why? 
Because Satan's agenda is always to bypass the cross. Satan doesn't mind if you think that Jesus is kind of neat. There's a song that says, Jesus is just all right with me. He's a great teacher, that he did some good stuff, that he was, he was a social worker. Those are, those are all true, but he's more than that. And the gospel is that he's more than that. The gospel is he came on a mission from heaven to die for sinners. And if you have an understanding of Jesus and salvation that leaves that out, you got no gospel, folks. Paul says, if, if an angel from heaven gives you another gospel, let, let, or me, let, let, let me be cursed. No, the gospel, in, it must include, the core of it is that Christ died on a cross according to the scriptures. Died for our sins. And so a crossless Christianity is no Christianity at all. And later in the same passage, Jesus says, the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. When the church has the message of the cross, it can't be stopped, you see? The message is a stumbling block to the world, but, but, and yet the church should not seek to be offensive to the world, but, but rather we should be on the offensive against the God of this world by proclaiming the gospel. Satan wants to, 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 to confuse and distort and, and mess us up, and, 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 and yet Jesus says that his church will be victorious against the onslaughts of evil one. You know, a simple question is, is, is you know, wh where are you? Where are you in, in your relationship with God? Are you, have you come to know this cross, this Christ of the cross? To acknowledge, to, to come to the knowledge of the truth, to believe in the gospel. Have you turned? Have you repented? You know, it says he died for all. And there's, a, there's a lot of alls in the passage, if you look at the passage. So I'm going to talk about this, the, the, just the, the, quickly, the idea of God's wish, and he came for all. You know, there's a, in the scriptures, clearly, there's a universal need for salvation because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul said in Romans. And we need to be saved or delivered from sin and its consequences. Secondly, there's a universal offer. There's an offer to all people who need this salvation from God. But, but sadly, the scriptures never tell us that there will be a universal experience of that salvation. The scriptures never give us that, that, that hope. Never does. And yet we're, we're to proclaim that message. We don't know those who are, quote, the elect. He used the word uh, uh, testimony. We'll talk quickly about testimony in verse 6. Um, because a testimony can come from our lips. It can come from our life. Testimony. There's a very popular slogan that I've used before. It's, it's pretty good. It says, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. The idea is you preach the gospel through your life. It's a good slogan. However, let me back off a little bit because I think sometimes we can use it as a cop-out for our fears. <laughs> we don't want to name the name of Jesus. We don't want to tell people that we really believe in him. We trust in this cross. So we say, I'll just, live, I'll just live the gospel. I won't speak the gospel. Look, the reality is that unless they know that the good works of your life are flowing from the Spirit of God because Jesus is coming to your life, they will never know the gospel. They will never know the gospel. They must hear, they must name the name. Paul, Paul, Paul's ministry, you see, in verse 7, look at what he says in the last verse here. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Paul was a preacher, an apostle. He says, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. He, was, he didn't come just for the Jews, his own people. They had a special revelation from God in the Old Testament. They were the people of the covenant, but he didn't just come for them. 
It didn't just come for the people in, 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 in Asia Maya, where Ephesus was, where Timothy was. It didn't just come for them. It came for all. So the word needs to go to all. Now, Paul says, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles, the nations. And Paul, he had special cross-cultural training and cross-cultural instincts. He was a Hellenistic Jew from the city of Tarsus. He had theological training under the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He had very special gifts. He was super gifted. He had an apostolic leadership calling upon his life. But, and all of us don't have that. <laughs> very few of us have that. But all of us have gifts. All of us have, all of us have gifts given to us by God. And those gifts are to be used for the furtherance of the gospel and, and, the, and the proclamation of, 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 to the nations that the world might hear. We share the gospel. We use our giftedness in doing that. So God, God's strategy is a church. And the church must utilize God's tactics if we are to defeat the enemy of our souls. We do it by persevering prayer, by, pray, by, by persevering faith, praying faith, and a faith that proclaims using the sword of the Spirit, the weapons of our warfare, bringing down strongholds. Let me tell you the story, close, close with the story of a man named Desmond Doss. You probably don't know that name. Desmond Doss. He was an unarmed army medic who saved the lives of dozens of his fellow soldiers under fire in Okinawa in World War II. He became the first conscientious objector to receive the Medal of Honor. He decided because of his own religious uh, convictions as a Seventh-day Adventist that he would not bear arms. So he became a medic. Many of you might know the story, might recognize the story from a movie. Hacksaw Ridge. It was out last year, I believe, earlier this year. Private Doss remained with the wounded. Now, talking about a particular battle in Okinawa, uh, there was a 400-foot ridge, and there's a picture of it right there. It's an actual picture. Um, he remained with the wounded as a medic, and uh, according to his Medal of Honor citation, he refused to seek cover, carrying them one by one in the face of enemy fire. He lowered each man on a rope, that he devised using double bowline knots that he learned as a youngster. Every wounded man was lowered to a safe spot 35 feet below the ridge top, and then Private Doss came down the ridge unscathed. Now later, he was injured, as you saw in one of those pictures. He was injured brutally. Um, the Japanese fire hit him, and he suffered a compound arm fracture. Um, he bound a rifle stock to his shattered arm as a splint. Evidently, the closest he ever came to handling a weapon. And then he crawled 300 yards to an aid station. So he was given on October 1945 by President Truman the Medal of Honor for his actions in Okinawa. The, a citation credited him with saving 75 soldiers on that ridge. But later he said the number was closer to 50. Only 50. <laughs> what a remarkable story. You know what that story reminds me of? <laughs> In the battle that we have, we get shot at. We get wounded. We get all busted up, don't we? And in that battle, we need someone to deliver us and to rescue us and to bring us back to the place of safety, don't we? Who in the world could be the person who could do that? The Lord Jesus Christ is there for each one of us. Are you wounded, by, by, are you wounded in this battle? I know some of you are. Does the battle get tough? I know it does. Is it hard sometimes to, to, to keep facing what you have to face? I know it does. But the gospel tells us that Jesus cares. Jesus is there, and Jesus will, call, he will carry you on his back like a Desmond Doss to the place 
You can get patched up. You can get healed up. And you can be re-energized to go and serve him and serve a broken world. We're in a battle. Though this world with devils filled with threatened to do us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Persevere. Pray. Proclaim.